Hello everyone and welcome to the Shared Ireland podcast series. Today our guest is a documentary and filmmaker. He has made a number of films and documentaries that have been screened in film festivals around Ireland, the UK and Europe. His work mainly reflects the social, economic and political landscapes of Belfast and surrounding areas with a particular view to redressing particular historical events during recent conflict in Ireland. Shared Ireland is delighted to welcome along Mr Sean Murray. Welcome Sean. Thank you. Sean, can you tell our listeners maybe a little bit about growing up, what life was like and how I guess this helped shape your thinking as an adult? Well I suppose like, like everyone who grew up in, in Clannard here in West Belfast, we Clannard is an area uh, which was it's considered highly, highly significant to the, uh, the the conflict and the beginning of the conflict. I mean, we the area borders the Shankill Road, so where we have the the, the, the peace line now, which separates the streets of Clannard from from the streets of uh, the Shankill. And and you grew up how far from the, that peace line? Like from the peace line, well, I grew up on on the Cash, at the bottom of the Cashmere Road. So you're to, you're talking a couple of hundred feet from the peace line. I suppose the reason why I ask that is just when I listen to you actually saying that. You know, somebody that isn't from Belfast, you know, and somebody that has lived in the north throughout, as you said, the Troubles. But again, that's a, that must be a very, you know, I don't know. I, I can't even imagine what that must have felt like growing up. And it obviously shaped your thinking. Well, it did, yeah, because, it, I mean, I, I, I'm old enough to remember the uh, before the peace lane was even set up. So what, what was the peace lane then would have been the old houses in Cooper Street. So they would have been part of the houses that were burnt out just behind Bombay Street. Mm-hmm. So the peace lane, in fact, was those houses that were blacked up, which separated the Catholics and the Protestants at the bottom of, of our street in the mm-hmm. Kaisma Road. And the other, if you'd like, uh, people my age, the other say they shankily, they were, you know, we, the only contact I had through use my age was through rats, organised rats and everything else. So I never, I never ever, until I was well into my late teens, would I have really met someone from the other side, you know. And I suppose that's the part that I was trying to get at, there when I said, you know, coming from somebody from the country, you know, that somebody can live two, three hundred yards away as a crow flies, but yet no, you would never come into contact with them until you're in your late teens. It does sound in 2019, looking back, kind of alien, doesn't it? It does, and, and the, the, the physicalities of that are still there because the peace lanes have increased from them. I mean, where we're, we're speaking now, is just, again, a couple of hundred yards from the peace line. You can see that, you know. Sean, do you think in 2019, is it important that these peace lines, barricades, call them what you want, still remain? Or should they be taken away? What's the sense from the people living here? Well, I, I always say, and it's important to state this, that the, the peace lines will never go down until the people, from particularly here, from people from the Shankill and the people that live in either side of that wall, make that decision. I've seen people come in here many times and have these great ideas about the, the, the walls coming down. That don't live here. That don't live here. Exactly. So first of all, it's, it's important for the people who live there to make that decision. And I think the overall consensus from both sides uh, at the minute just say that they, they need those walls there still, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I suppose you touched on there, you never came in contact with people from that lived in the other side, which would have been people from the Shankill area, is that right? That's until right, yeah. until your late teens. Mm-hmm. And 
I suppose, can you remember, <laughs> had you ever, you know, can you remember the first conversation you had with somebody or how did that feel or come about? Well, the first time that I'd met someone from the other side, would have been my late teens, would have been uh, in the raves, once the raves came in in the, the late 90s. So you were a big raver, so? Well, I, once, once the, the, that was, that's hit my ears, once the, the dance culture came in, that was me, that was me gone, you yes. know. But the, uh, one thing that the, the raves done was working class Protestants and working class Catholics went to places, the same places, and there was never talk of politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, I made a, a film in 2015, it was released in 2016 actually, which uh, details that, that period, you know, it was, a, it was a drama called Fractured City, which won the Royal Television Society Award in London. Fractured City? Fractured City. So just for any of our listeners that maybe haven't seen it, where can someone access that film? Well, actually, you can get it on... Uh, uh, if you Google Fracture City, it'll it'll come up on YouTube or, or Vimeo right. or whatever. So it's okay. it's free to access, and that that was about two friends who'd who'd uh, experienced the, the the dance culture. But not only what what happened with the dance culture, what came with the dance dance culture was the easy access to drugs. And for the first time in in, in our areas, we seen that easy access to drugs with the legs of ecstasy and stuff like that. And and and, and it was a. It was a very dangerous period, as well as being as that sense of freedom with the dance culture coming in. Because what you had was you had uh, some groups were killing drug dealers, and other groups were actually selling the drugs. And you know? also, it was a hi when you put it like that. Yeah, let's. Where did you go to be safe? Exactly. So, and, and there's a scene in Fractured City actually where these two lads go to a house party, uh, and uh, they come in contact with a, a paramilitary in a house party. And, and it goes a bit pear-shaped from there, but I wouldn't give too much away. But No, and, and I must admit here um, that I haven't watched Fractured City, but I can assure you tonight when I go home, it'll be one of the first things I do. Okay, Sean, we'll move on. Um, a few weeks ago, there was another initiative by the group called Ireland's Future, where they penned an open letter to Leo Varadkar and the Irish government, and over a thousand people from all walks of life from all across the island signed the letter. Can I ask you a question? Did you sign the letter? And, if, it, you, and if you did, why? I did indeed. Well, I have no hesitations in signing the letter because I think it's uh, the issue of Irish unification is, has been compounded by what's happened over Brexit. I think we all need to have a, a mature discussion around what that entails. And I think that this, this is going to be won through the middle ground and we need to start speaking about it. And unionists, I mean, the dem- demographics have changed, and, and unionists, uh, I think, need to start, stop sleepwalking into uh, what they perceive as some kind of uh, dark uh, dystopia of what a United Ireland means. Or maybe not even use the word United Ireland. Uh, it's about a new Ireland. Language is important It's here. very, very important. Uh, a new Ireland that, that accommodates both traditions, uh, Republican traditions, and of course, once uh, the reunification of Ireland happens, British people won't stop being British. That has to be accommodated. Is that a federal Ireland? We need to discuss what that means. You know. So I think there's a lot, lot to talk about, and I think that for sure Brexit has, has compounded the issue, but I think that uh, in a good way, I, I think that that, that has, has started a lot, of, a lot of good conversations. Yeah, you, you touched on unionism needs to be engaged. I think Peter Robinson famously uh, used the analogy of house insurance at um, a public event last year where he said that, you know, while 
We hope our house doesn't burn down. We still take out insurance in case it does. And I suppose what he was alluding to, we need to be prepared. They obviously, unionism, loyalism, I would imagine wouldn't want the reunification of Ireland. But it's important, as you alluded to, Sean, that their voice be here. We need to hear the fears, their aspirations, their concerns. Um, one of the questions that I ask um, some people from a union's background on the Shared Ireland podcast is, what are their fears? And I would say, without fail, most of their answers is the erosion or the loss of their British identity and culture. And I suppose me, as an Irish nationalist, needs to hear that. Because, you know, in my daily life, I wouldn't even be thinking along them term, terms. So, like, what does that, you know, how can I ensure that their, their protection and their rights are guaranteed in a new shared Ireland? Um, have you any thoughts on that? Or have you had many conversations with, you know, unionism in your own personal capacity? Well, of course, I think what's happened over this last number of years, on a personal capacity, uh, every Christmas, me and a number of Republicans would go out with ex-servicemen, ex-British servicemen, and, and have become friends, actually. Honestly? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some ex-RUC men and women, uh, and, and some ex-British servicemen. Yeah. How did this come about? Uh, actually, Twitter, Twitter has been, uh, I've noticed this on Twitter, that the most unlikely of friendships have came through discussions on Twitter, uh, and, and also through, through other people. You know? I'm sitting here in shock, but to be honest with you, delighted. Yeah. Delighted. And there has been uh, some great conversations and great discussions have taken place from that. Me, Danny Morrison, and a number of other Republicans would have these discussions now and again, uh, but every Christmas we would go out for a drink, have something to eat. And it's always a great event every year, you know. That's, that's, that's very good. Would there be any chance of getting a, an invite to one of these Certainly. Drinks? <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> Sean, uh, recently there seems to be an upsurge in documentaries, especially about our troubled past, I suppose. You are more famously known for Unquiet Graves. Uh, we also have the Miami Showband Massacre and No Stone Unturned, to name a few. I suppose there's a couple of wee questions here. Why do you think, Sean, that film is so important in telling the real-life experiences here in Ireland? Well, I think what, what film does is it fills the void. So what, what we've seen through the, uh, basically from the Good Friday Agreement, is that there was never proper mechanisms put in place to deal with legacy issues. Uh, we see that the, the British government are still uh, involved in hiding documents. They're still involved in these so-called accidental asbestos accidents and fires going off. We've seen it with the recent documentaries in Spotlight. High, the uh, golf barracks. Yes, the golf barracks, etc. So we know that they're, they're, they're putting a massive amount of resources into hiding the truth still. What film does, it's, it, it, it bypasses all that. It's unconstrained. Mm -hmm. It can't, whatever truth that can be uh, assembled can be employed through film. It's a great means of mass communication. It's instant. And that the families directly can get the stories of their loved ones out there. And, and I just think that it's a, it's, it's a powerful medium, you know. Mm -hmm. I guess you kind of touched on part B of that. I was going to say to you, what advantage does film have over all our mediums in telling powerful stories? Um, I suppose, as you already alluded to, you possibly have more freedom than all our media because we can all read a book, read a newspaper column. But when I suppose human beings were very visual people, yeah. So when you when you can see sit down in you know 
your own comfort of your home and press play um, and you can see people acting out dramas. It is very powerful. It is. It is indeed, yeah. Given the subject matter in your film, Unquiet Grave, Sean, was it difficult for you to get backing or financing for it? Yeah, of course, because it's a, it's a very sensitive uh, subject. It's very political. Uh, I didn't think we were ever going to get funding. Uh, I know that particularly after the release of 66 Days, mm-hmm. uh, I was <clears throat> involved in meeting with a number of funders and they told me after that that there was a backlash within unionism to that film coming out and that they were mobilising against the arts in general. Mm-hmm. It was during that period that there was a, a defunding, a mass defunding of the arts, etc. So it, could be, it came at a particularly difficult time to try and get funding. But it also, with, with uh, situations like that, becomes, there, there, there becomes opportunities. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that for me, uh, even though we didn't get the funding, galvanised us into making the film that we had wanted anyhow. Mm-hmm. Because if we have uh, institutional funding bodies involved in our filmmaking process, you'll find that they want some kind of editorial control. Mm-hmm. So we wanted full independent control of the narrative of the film. It was about the families, it was victim-centred. And we didn't. We wanted those stories unconstrained. So, mm-hmm. with you know, with with the, the the lack of funding that was there, there 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 were there were opportunities. You know, how long was this idea? And I suppose I'm just talking about the Unquiet Graves one here. How long was this idea percolating in your head? And how long did it take for you to get the green light from a financial point of view? And how many hoops did you have to jump through? <laughs> There's innumerable hoops, so you, I mean, hard to, it'd be hard to chart that. But if I can give you a kind of a trajectory, I'd, all, I'd always wanted to convey an overall uh, sense of what collusion was about. And I always knew that the Glen Ann series was, was one of the biggest that, that I had known or read about at the time. But it wasn't until Anne Cadwallader's book, Lethal Allies, was released in 2013. Yeah. That I'd, I'd pulled it all together. I'd went and, and met Anne Cadwallader, told her my thoughts on on making a film on the issue, and then Anne introduced me to Margaret Irwin from Justice for the Forgotten, and of course the team at the Pat Finucane Centre, Paul O'Connor and, and Alan Bracknell. Who could, I mean, we're, we're talking twenty plus years of research that, that was involved uh, in the film already. So prior to that, so I was a latecomer uh, to the project. And I think the big one for me was meeting the, the Glen Ann families in Ben Burb almost four years ago. And that impressed upon them what I had hoped to do with the film. And, 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 and mainly what, what that was about was getting their stories out to an international audience and mm-hmm. becoming not just a film to tell their stories, but becoming an actual advocacy tool for the families, mm-hmm. a, a campaigning tool for the families yeah. to, to, to promote, uh, to, to both promote their stories and also to become part of that uh, activist process. I guess now would be as good a time as any to ask you, what first, uh, what first drew you to the whole process of filmmaking, documentary, what, uh, what sort of an age did you think to yourself, oh, there's something I'd like to do? Well, I'd always been interested in film, um, but I can chart my, my doc, I mean, I've just finished writing about this when, when I submitted my PhD recently. And I've done a chapter on its auto-ethnographic filmmaking, which, which personalised my filmmaking, and I decided to, re- to write about where, where this came from, you know. So I could really chart it to the period of 1988, uh, around the, the, 
the two weeks with the killings of Gibraltar and the killing of the corporals okay. and Andersonstown. So it was a, a, a very dark period for the, the community of West Belfast. Yeah. And uh, Donnie McCann, who was one of the, the volunteers that was killed in Gibraltar, was my godfather and I was very close to him. Okay. And once, once the, the incident had happened in Gibraltar, there was a, a documentary that was made called Death on the Rock mm-hmm. by a, a, a great English journalist called Roger Bolton. Mm-hmm. And it was really the last, the last kind of journalistic documentary that I could remember, which, which really went for the British government. Uh, and, and of course, Margaret Thatcher tried to stop that documentary. Mm-hmm. And it finally aired in 1988. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it, was also, uh, it was also a point in which Roger Bolton realized that it that, that put his own career on the line. I mean, that, that, that fella didn't get much work after that. And eventually, Thames Television lost her license three years later. So Margaret Thatcher eventually got her way, you know. So, but that, that whole series of events, it's, it's then that I realised the power of documentary. The documentary could be a counter-narrative mm-hmm. to the misinformation which happened around uh, Gibraltar and, 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 and other incidents. And what Roger Bolton done was he got to the eyewitnesses right away and completely debunked that official narrative that was put out by both the British government and the British tabloid, mm-hmm. tabloids. You mentioned there in your answer, Sean, you um, done a PhD. What university was that in, can I ask? It's Queen's University, Belfast. Yeah. Queen's University. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose recently it has come to light that Professor Colin Harvey uh, from Queen's University, Belfast, has been subjected to, I guess, outside harassment and pressure for his um, publications and discussions on Irish Unity, and I guess these are Colin's private, you know, thoughts. Um, you yourself, Sean, highlighted on social media that something similar happened to you when filming on Quiet Graves. Would you mind maybe elaborating on, I guess, Colin's point and your point? Well, what happened when when, uh, when I was filming on Quiet Graves is that there were a number of complaints made against me personally and about the film, and this. This was, uh, these were official complaints put to Queen's University and also uh, by extension to QFT Cinema. So there was phone calls to QFT Cinema asking were they going to promote this film when it eventually came out. So there was, they were trying to both uh, put pressure on, on the university and the cinema for the, the, the films released, you know. But I, th- I think I have to say now, uh, within my department, that they, they dealt with that steadfastly and that that was... Uh, that it was dealt with and I was very comfortable with the situation from the start, you know. I guess I'm trying to think here and put myself in, I suppose, your position or Professor Collins' position. And I guess the only question that springs to mind is, how did that make you feel? Actually, I mean, we just talk about the influences, uh, you know, in documentary with me growing up. There was also uh, underground activist films during that period in, in, in the, the, the late 80s. And the biggest, greatest influence in my own career was a, a documentary maker called Arthur McKeague. Okay. And he had uh, he would have released a, a documentary in 1979 called The Patriot Game. Mm-hmm. And also a, a highly influential, influential film uh, called Irish Ways. Mm-hmm. And that was released in 1989. But it detailed that whole period. And for the first time, I had seen the conflict framed through members of my own community. Mm-hmm. And what I also had done and I think it was a documentary that was years before its time. What he'd also done was he had interviewed RUC men, British uh, Army personnel, and also Gusty Spence from the Loyalist side. So here you have a documentary uh, in 1988 
dealing and giving context to the individual experiences of those combatants who were involved in the conflict. Something that to this date has never really been done. And if we, what I try to do with my own work is I try to frame it uh, within the field of transitional justice. I also know that I'm, I'm, I'm responsible in my filmmaking and I, I see my filmmaking as part of the process of conflict transformation. And I still like to see it as Arthur McHague had seen it then, mm-hmm. you know. And his work was highly influential in, in, in what I do today. Mm-hmm. But getting back to your, your, your point and, and asking me how I'd felt about that, I mean, Arthur McHague had said at the time the British government had called uh, the Patriot Game a, a great piece of propaganda and banned it from, uh, from being seen in Britain and Ireland. It was made by a France television crew. And, and Arthur McHague said it was the greatest review that he could ever hope for. Absolutely. So when you have the likes of these uh, faceless uh, calls that are being made at the Queen's, and it wasn't also actually faceless calls, it came from a, a, a political party, and also uh, I'll say that victims groups also were, were phoning Queen's University about me and my filmmaking. And I would echo what Arthur McCaig said. It was, uh, I would also say that it was, a, it was a, 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 a nod to my work and knowing that I was doing something right, you know. When people's criticising you, you know you're doing something right. Yeah. Uh, Sean, John Weir was a self-confessed member of the Glenan gang and your film includes an interview you did with him. Can you tell us how that came about? Well, I had got John Weir's uh, contacts through uh, someone who had worked, uh, someone from Dublin who had worked uh, closely with him before. And when I eventually made contact, through a number of occasions, I had decided to uh, go to South Africa to interview him. And uh, of course you see in the film uh, what, what he had to say in the film. And, and from the outset, he was very forthcoming to me. Uh, I always say this, that for, for someone who was involved in some dark, dark uh, instances during, during the conflict, I think the only time that I thought John Weir was lying to me was when I asked him, have you any regrets? And he said no. So I think he, he did have regrets. I think he's a man who's very, very troubled about his past, but for some reason wanted to put a front up to me. But all that aside, the families would never have got to where they are now without the help of John Weir. And, and also, you know, any whistleblower for that matter that helps in these matters is, is very, very vital to finding the truth out about what happened to many killings during the, the, the conflict, you know. Mentioned the families there, and I guess, unfortunately, they are central to the whole program. What has the feedback been that you got, Sean, from the families after they seen, I guess, the first cut? In June, sorry, in May 2018, we had the very, very first screening, and that was a private screening in Moy uh, to to all the extended family members that had been affected. And that was it? Nobody else? Just Nobody else. The family members. Just, the, just the family members. And how many people were in the room, if you could paint us a picture? There was three, 300 plus people in the room. Honestly? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 300 plus? Yes, yeah, so, we're, so we're talking over 120 civilians killed by the Glenarm gang. It's not, it's not extraordinary the, the, the sense that there would be that kind of number of people there. I, again, I, I said 300 in shock. And then when you remind me, over 120 people killed by the Glenarm gang, was, then I suppose... Why was it only 300? <laughs> My question Exactly, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that was a, that was a real benchmark for me. 
it was an anxious period for me, both because there was, there was fear that the film would traumatise some of, the, some of those that were involved in the documentary and, and Beck Stenson, any of those who were affected by the Glen Allen gang. So, sorry for interrupting you, Sean, I apologise, but something just springs to mind here. Before you made the film, did you have to go around and get personal consent from each of the families, or did you take a general consensus, or do you mind me asking that? Yeah, well, usually in, in, in the documentary process is that you do that, but we are coming in on the back of the conduit being the Pat Finucan Centre, mm-hmm. which had the consent of all the families for making the film money, hey? Understood. So... They were, 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 were my way in, and once they had introduced me to the families from there on in, it, it sparked up great relationships with some of the, the family members, even, even to this day, you know. And, then, and last week we just buried Sean McCartney from Balaki, whose, whose brother was killed coming back from the All-Ireland semi-final in 1975, mm-hmm. which actually opens the, the Unquiet Graves film, that scene, you know. Sorry, I rudely interrupted you while you were speaking about... Um, the first showing of the film in the Moy, where there was uh, upwards of 300 people um, of the families there to view it. What was their, I suppose, what was their response after um, the film was over? Were you waiting, holding your breath? <laughs> well, I, I stood at the back of the hall, and I just remember I was, I was particularly uh, concerned about Margaret Campbell, whose husband was, was killed by uh, Robin Jackson, the leader of the Glen Allen gang. Because that, that, that scene with Margaret Campbell in the film was very, very emotional. It's, it was the most emotional interview that I had ever been involved in, but also that I had ever seen in any documentary film, ever. For some reason, it just, it's captivating. It's, it's just raw emotion. And, mm-hmm. and, and for her, she was, she was re-traumatized going back overall in it. And, and I was really, really worried. And I'd spoke to her daughter beforehand and said, Look, you know, there are mechanisms in place here for anyone, I and mean, that this was explained to the audience beforehand. If anyone needs to speak or needs to leave during the film, there's a side room here where there's uh, there are people there from the Pat Finucane Centre who can talk to them. Uh, and but it was, it was really concerned about Margaret Campbell because it was it was it had the the potential to to really traumatise her because because of that raw emotion that was involved in in, in the the interview. But at the end of the film. There was a there was a, a, a massive round of applause, and then there was a silence, and then as I stood at the back of the hall, Margaret Campbell slowly made her way up to me, and uh, she she gave me a big hug, and she said to me, "That's exactly how it was," because there's a reconstruction of what had happened when her husband was killed. She says that's exactly how it was, and something really profound that she said to me afterwards was, "Do you know what was worse than seeing him being shot dead?" was what the RUC done to me in the IDE parade afterwards. Which was? Well, for anyone she, was, she was taken away by herself to Belfast to ID uh, the person who potentially killed her, her husband. And what happened was Margaret Campbell pointed that person out. And for some reason, they made her go back in that room and asked her to touch that person. And she says to me, how could I touch the person that I'd seen killing my husband? So he was, he was free to go after that and became the greatest serial killer, the biggest serial killer in the conflict, responsible for probably over 100 killings personally himself, which lasted a couple of decades. But but more importantly, sorry, let me say this, is that he was a special branch informer and also a member of the Ulster Defence Regiment, the biggest uh, regiment in the British Army. So again, I just want to go over what you're going to have to say, and so for anyone that isn't maybe familiar with 
that scenario. You're telling me now that the RUC, the police force of the time in Northern Ireland, asked a woman whose husband had been shot to go in and physically touch the killer of her husband. That's correct, yeah. That's what happened. Okay. I suppose I'm just listening to you, Sean, speak here, and, and you know, I find it fascinating, obviously. I suppose there's a great weight of responsibility in you and other people. And, and again, it, it probably, again, didn't dawn on me until I heard you speak there about, you know, having a side room for family members if they got re-traumatised and things like this. How does that sit with you, knowing that you carry this, I suppose, great weight of responsibility? I don't think I'd be able to do uh, what I do unless I was affected myself by, by the conflict. I mean, there were four close and extended members of my family that were killed by the state. So I think that's just something that's there. I think that comes across when I interview people. Uh, I'm not a journalist. Uh, people think because of the work that I do that, that, that I'm a journalist. I'm not a journalist. I'm a filmmaker. I'm, I'm, I'm a storyteller. And I think I have a way of dealing with people that's, that's different from a journalist going in and doing it. Uh, and I just think that that... I'm not saying the journalists don't have that empathy, but they have that way of doing things. And, and what I do is, is it's much more personal. And a lot of the family members know uh, that I come from the, the same uh, areas, the same places of themselves, and have also been affected. And I think it becomes easier for them. What I also do is that I, I don't, I don't use a big crew to go in and interview people. Mm -hmm. For example, Margaret Campbell's interview was just two of us, just me and a cameraman, and I had set the sound up. That's vitally important if you want to uh, make someone feel comfortable uh, and be able to tell in their own, their own way what, what, what they would want to say about their loved ones and about the incident which led to their deaths or whatever, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Is it, do you think you achieved what you set out to achieve with the film? Looking back now, are you happy? Do you feel as if that the narrative that you want to portray was portrayed well? I, I'm really happy with Unquackers because it was basically it was just me, the families, the Pat Finucane Centre and Justice for the Forgotten. We had no help from anyone, no financial help. Uh, everything, uh, there were many things against us from the start. There was political pressure. There was also pressure within our own communities in a number of ways. And I wouldn't go into it too much, but... I think what, what got to me most during the filmmaking process was I thought I'd get support from the full community, which I didn't. Uh, and I, I, th I think that for me was, was demoralizing at the time, but it also strengthened my resolve in making the film. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was very, very surprised that that, the, that, that, that wasn't there. Uh, but in saying that, I expected more, and I read about this in the PhD also, I expected greater criticism from the unionist community. Uh, because after No Stone Unturned, the backlash to No Stone Unturned, and the backlash to 66 Days, mm -hmm. and I, I had uh, I'd been waiting on that same backlash with Unquack Grays, but Unquack Grays is a very different film. It's, it's a filmmaker's film. Uh, it's, it uses animation. It has a stay, which is very unconventional for a documentary, and I think it just wraps its armor, arms around people. I think the Seamus Heaney poem, which is used in the film and has animated, 
and how it's beautifully recited by Stephen Ray is just something that completely decommissions people. Very powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about that. How would you respond, Sean, to critics that claim you're only dragging up the past and things like this should be left alone? Well, if we don't highlight what happened in the past and we don't educate our young people about what happened in the past, it's, it's condemned to repeat itself. So I think I'm constantly defending that position. I, I, I don't see how bringing up the past has the potential to radicalise anyone. I think what it does is reinforces how bad it was in the past. Uh, if we look at the, 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 the seven episodes of the, the latest Spotlight documentary, mm-hmm. uh, some, uh, and I'd have to say, I take a, st- a step back and say that there was some great journalistic work went into that, that for, for anyone to, to witness those documentaries, and I was speaking to a, a doctor yesterday actually, and he's, he had seen the, the seven episodes himself. He had said he, he didn't realise how bad it was. It's only when you can view that uh, and from today's events that you, you look back and you say, how do we get through it? And what do we do to make sure it never repeats itself again? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Um, Sean, in your opinion, what is required to create a truly shared Ireland? Very simple question with a, with a big answer, I'm sure. I think what we need, first of all, is a new Ireland is never going to take place unless it has the consent of the unionist community, for a start. Uh-huh. And I don't, I don't mean a veto. There's a difference between consent and veto. Uh, and I see this 50 plus 1 argument's been happening over this last uh, number of months. And I, I, I completely dis- disagree. I, I think what's not up for negotiation, I've seen that actually from some moderate niceness also, which I've been getting involved in this conversation and said we, we might need a consider the 50 plus 1 arrangement that was enshrined under the Good Friday Agreement. Under no circumstances do I ever support uh, anything that emboldens a unionist veto once again over the 50 plus 1 argument. Mm-hmm. If it was good enough for the failed state over his last 98 years, 99 years, it's good enough for us now because we are not going back to the way it was. Unionists will not be treated the way nationalists have been treated in this failed state. And I think that the conversations that we were talking about earlier uh, will involve some uncomfortable. Uh, it'll involve some comfortable uh, decisions for nationalists and for unionists, and we all need to agree on a way forward which suits and accommodates both traditions. And w- with that in mind, a future that that says that we should never ever go back to the way it was before. You know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I don't think many can disagree with that. How do pro-unity voices, Sean, reassure and convince unionism to engage and prepare for a new shared Ireland for everyone? And again, I emphasise the words here, engage, because I think that is vital here, to have a grown adult conversation. Warts and all, we won't agree on everything, but at least have the conversation. Well, I mean, that's, that's something that's part of the, the overall debate. But I think it also happens on a very personal level. Something that we've been doing, as we said, mentioned earlier, over this last number of years with ex-combatants. And I think it begins with the personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I see that we're seeing at the minute the whole Brexit issue has, has fermented further extremism on both sides. 
uh, with dissident Republicans. And of course, we're now seeing these debates that's going on within loyalist areas. And I think that, that loyalism itself and unionism itself is very fractured. Mm -hmm. And it would be great to see uh, these extremists face down within the loyalist and unionist community. I don't know if that's happening. We'll soon see with the elections. But I'm pretty confident, I think, that the unionist community, once and for all, will, 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 will move away from the, the, the negative language that we've been seeing over this last number of months through Brexit. Uh, and it needs to remove itself from that. That's kind of negative. I mean, if you, Every time that, I, that, that, that I, I look on social media, on the commentary from some of the extremists within loyalists and communities areas, it's the same language if you go back to the, the uh, Anglo-Irish Agreement in 1985. No surrender, Lundism, treachery, betrayal. How about using some positive language and asking how you can move forward with the other side of the community? Because there's concessions that we have to give as Republicans and as nationalists. And there needs to be an awareness within the loyalist and unionist community that that has to happen too. I mean, the, the Martin McGuinness' decision uh, in, in taking down Stormont, well, I mean, that, that, that Martin McGuinness had done enough. He had reached a point where he had done so much to reach out to the unionist community that it couldn't go on any longer. Uh, but, you know, there, 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 there is leadership there uh, within nationalist and Republican, and I think there is leadership there within unionism. The problem with, with unionism is... Once someone, once a leader sticks his head above the parapet, it's that old adage of someone being a Lundy or no surrender, and, and they're quickly you know, taken down. Look at, look at Trimble, look at Paisley. And that needs to be, those uncomfortable conversations and those battles need to be fought and won within unionism. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it was the general election coming up. I suppose it's just around the corner on the 12th of December. Do you think the remaining vote will come out across the board here, Sean? I think it will. I think... Party political politics put to the one side. Yeah, I think it will. I'm just a bit disappointed at the some of the alliance decisions so far. It may change that the, the, the alliance won't stand aside in, in North Belfast, for example. I think that alliance should view this as, as an exceptional election. Uh, and it's an extraordinary election. Probably the most important election we've ever had in, in the state. And that uh, you need to put party politics aside and look at a remain, the strongest remain candidate in each of the uh, constituencies, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you think when the history books are written about, will Brexit be seen as a defining factor in the call for Irish Union? Absolutely. It has accelerated by, what, a generation at least? No doubt. I think Brexit has been... Uh, I think it has been the, the, the greatest... Uh, acceleration to the overall debate around the reunification of Ireland. I think without Brexit, as you rightly said, we may be waiting another generation. Okay, Sean, we're nearly 40 minutes in here. And a wee body tells me you have to drive to Dublin yet, so um, I won't keep you. Tell me this, who inspires you, Sean? Uh, I think I'll, I have to look at other filmmakers when, when I look at my inspiration. Obviously, there's some great international filmmakers that are great, they're doing great work uh, that I would look up to. I mean, Patricia Guzman in Chile, uh, he, what he looks is he looks at the recuperation of memory in Chile around the Salva, Salvadoriende period, and of course the Pinochet era, and the disappearances of so many people in Chile, and how it wasn't only the physical disappearance of people, it was also the, the disappearance of memory, about a new generation doesn't really know what happened in Chile. And it's about educating that new generation and also politicising them. 
and, and, and it's even more current now when we see these current riots in Chile, that we need the likes of people like Patricio Guzman. We also have the likes of Joshua Oppenheimer, uh, an American filmmaker who, who made a film called The Act of Killing, and also my friend Colin McRae, who made The Ball of Murphy Press. And these are people who have platformed uh, these personal stories to international audiences and also have galvanized responses from the United Nations. So it happened with the, in the act of killing, we had seen that the United Nations got involved in the whole issue of genocide uh, around what happened in Indonesia in 65 and 66. And also uh, Colin McRae's film, No Fire Zone, what that done was it, it internationalized what, was happened, uh, what had happened in the genocide of the, the Tamil people mm -hmm. uh, in Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. So film is, is very, very important. Uh, I mean, it just, we just can't look at that in, a, in an insular context here. Just, just look at Netflix. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. I mean, what do you do? When, what, what do most people do? It's not only about what, what, what they're watching when they go home now. We'll have it right in front of us with our phones. Our phones, everything, yeah. Exactly, so, you know, it's, uh, it's never been as important. I think the proliferation of digital media now has Absolutely. compounded that. I think that the documentary in particular has, has the means to counter uh, the official narrative, no matter where that is, and and make people critically think. Mm -hmm. Documentary does that. You want something, mm -hmm. you have a new perspective, and you can make your own mind up. And you're not watching, you know, you're not getting it from the likes of the BBC or any an, other. an institution. Exactly. With possible agendas. Exactly. Give a twenty-year-old Sean Murray some advice, knowing what you know now about life. Don't be a busy fool. <laughs> Sitting talking to me, you mean? I was always a busy fool. Uh, I worked, I worked too much, and never got anywhere. So don't be a busy fool. Concentrate on one thing. Don't have your fingers in too many pies. Mm, yeah, I like that one. Or maybe it resonates with me. I don't know what. <laughs> okay, last question, Sean, and it's the one that most of our guests dread. If you could invite three people, alive or dead, to your fictional dinner party, who would they be and why? Jeez, some question that. That reminds me of Alan Partey's episode, so it does. Why, what was that? He was asked the same question, and he says, uh, Jesus, Margaret Thatcher, Mark Thatcher, and Carl Thatcher. <laughs> and, the, and the interviewer says, uh, so basically Jesus and the Thatchers. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... I'm now interested to hear your answer instead of Alan Partridge's. Uh, that's a difficult question. I'm not too sure. Probably be, to, to be people who you would like to be here still, obviously. People who were close to you, who had died. Uh, and I can't really think of anybody living. Uh, because <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> honestly, no. I can't really that's think the first of time I've got that answer. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I think I suppose it's people who, who, who have gone, who are very personal. But that really. is very true. I even yeah. when I think about it myself, it's meant to be a lighthearted question, but when I think about what you're saying there, of course there's going to be people that, that are unfortunately no longer with us yeah. and we would love to spend maybe one last hour with you. Of yeah. course, uh, yeah. yeah. Sorry for not giving you a great No, no, and, and I won't push your names because it is, so I understand that, yeah. Listen, on that note, Mr. Sean Murray, um, thank you for giving up your valuable time for to speak to Shared Ireland today. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to some of your answers, and I know our listeners will as well. So um, thank you very much, and um, we'll maybe speak to you sometime in the future.
Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. No problem at all. Stay tuned, folks. And if you like what you heard, a retweet would be appreciated. Take care. Bye-bye.